You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see you. Uh, If this is your first time, welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in the middle of camps here, so it is all Legos all the time here for our two children's camp that explains some of the the scenery here, and uh, if it is your first time, uh, thanks for, for coming this morning, and uh, we would love to offer you a free gift, uh, a tumbler or sippy cup or water bottle. You can get that out at the info desk. That's our gift to you if it's your first time here, and uh, if you have any prayer requests or you'd like more information about our church, there's a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot right over there. And I just remember that I didn't silence my phone, which I usually do before, and I'm going to do that right now. And uh, maybe that's a reminder to you to do the same. I was like, wow, that would be, uh, that would be embarrassing because I have a record, guys. That's never happened to me in a sermon. So I want to keep that going. There's an amazing character in Russian history, Nikolai Vavilov. He was a renowned Russian scientist, botanist, and uh, he had witnessed the horrors of famine in his homeland of Russia. Millions of people died of starvation. And so for the sake of his country and the world, he vowed that that would never happen again. So starting in the 20s, he and a team of scientists began to develop this seed bank. Their their goal was to collect every edible seed known to humanity and preserve it in one place so that in the event of some kind of global disaster, humanity's food would be preserved. Uh, In Uh, World War II, though, that that mission was almost derailed. The the Nazis laid siege to the city of Leningrad, where the the seed bank was located, and for 900 days, the city was under attack. They were completely cut off from outside food, resources. The food supply began to round up. People began to get desperate. They broke into the local zoo and started to eat the animals. They ate their household pets. They did anything they could to find food. And yet deep within the heart of the city, there was this enormous storehouse of hundreds of thousands of seeds. And the scientists had hidden it. And they hid it because the Nazis knew it was there, but they didn't know where. And so for the duration of this siege, the scientists kept it hidden did not give its location up. More than that, they refused to eat the seeds. As a result, nine of the scientists working there actually died of starvation because they were so convinced that this seed bank would be necessary to the future survival of humanity. Most people don't think that way, do they? That kind of mindset is rare, particularly in our modern context where we live in this culture of immediacy. The only results worth getting are instant results. The only thing worth waiting for is what I can get right now. And very few people have the vision to ask, what will matter to me 10 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, what will be important to me and the people around us? Now, often we prepare for uncertainties. We prepare with a vision for what might happen. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there's a different kind of long-term perspective to have because 
we don't just prepare for contingencies, we prepare for certainties. Not just what might happen, but what God says will happen. In a culture of immediacy, we need to cultivate this way of thinking that is really not just preparing for the inevitable, but for the inevitable. What God has told us will happen. We are in this series in Genesis 1 through 11. We're calling it Let's Start at the Beginning because this is the beginning of God's story. This is an introduction to, to everything that comes after. It's a foundation for understanding the Word of God. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the nature of faith. What does it mean to trust God? And I think it is so critical as believers that we understand what it means to have faith. Because if you ask someone on the street, do you have faith? They might say, sure, I have faith. But what do they mean? Often in our culture, what people mean is this, I have faith in faith. I have faith in the power of belief. I think faith is super faithy. And great things happen when you just are generally optimistic. You believe in the potential. You believe that things will work out. You believe the best. Uh, and, and that might be a great way to live. You might live a happier life. That's not biblical faith. See, see, biblical faith is not just believing in a generic sense that things will work out. It's not having a general optimism. It's not believing in some generic God who has the potential to bless you. In fact, believing in the Bible is more than believing in God. It's believing God. It's taking him at his word. What I want you to see this morning is that the nature of biblical faith is not believing that things will work out in some generic way or believing in potential. It's living in confidence that what God says will happen will happen and then living like it's going to happen. Even if that doesn't make sense to the people around you. That's the index of faith is how we prepare for the future God has for us. And I think that's what we see in the story of Noah. And that's who we're going to start looking at today. Two things from this passage. First, in Genesis 6, we see how God warns his word for the future and then how we should prepare as seen in Noah. And this gives us a template for what it looks like to have biblical faith which is living in light of the inevitable. But before we look at this passage, let's ask God for his help. Lord, I know that there are people struggling, hurting. I pray you would comfort them this morning and would you ground them by your spirit in this confidence that what you say will come to pass. God, it is impossible for you to lie. And so we know that if you say it, we can take it to the bank. We can believe it. And Lord, that is a hopeful thing, but it is also a sobering thing. So would we live in reverent fear of your word? And would we plan for your future? Thank you that our future in you is secure, Jesus. Teach us from your word. In your name, amen. Let's look at God's word. What does God say about the future to Noah? Well, what I want you to see here is that God gives a clear warning. And throughout scripture, God gives clear clear warnings about what the future is going to look like. Starting in verse 1, Genesis 6 says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Last week, we talked about being faithful when the world falls apart. And I told you the story gets worse. Now it's worse. The world has fallen apart and things are so extreme that God is going to bring cataclysmic judgment. Now, let's take a step back and just acknowledge the obvious tension we feel when we read this text. People are evil, so what does God do? He wipes out everyone. What's the tension? How is God good? How is God merciful, right? I mean, what do we do? How do we reconcile this with the picture of God we see in Jesus? It will never not be funny to me that this is like the most popular Sunday school story. And I know, it's because there's animals, right? And we'll get to the animals and what the animals mean. And so it's like we're going to the zoo when we see the story. Oh, and by the way, God killed everyone. This is not a Sunday school story. It is one of the most terrifying scenes in all of Scripture. And so how do we make sense of this? Let me say this about God's judgment. It's very important for us to see. First, we should not soften the picture of judgment here. I have no interest in making this more palatable to you. Nor do we solve this by saying something like, well, in the Old Testament, God was really mad. And in the New Testament, God becomes Jesus and he kind of mellows out. Now Jesus is a sweetheart. And you know why we can't do that? Because Jesus, in talking about his return, do you know what he compares it to? The days of Noah. (laughs) And he said, a flood came, another flood is coming. So Jesus does not fundamentally think God's character has changed. As C.S. Lewis says, God is not a tame lion. He is good. He's not tame. There is a difference. And so we should have a righteous fear of the judgment and justice of God. However, it's also important to see here the context of this judgment and what God is doing because it is not arbitrary. It is not capricious. In fact, it comes with a clear Warning, and that's what I want you to see. Just a few things to contextualize this judgment and help us make sense of it. The first thing you have to understand when you see a passage like this is to remember that God has absolute sovereign authority to judge his creation. Period. We are not God, which means God gets to do things we don't get to do. God is the creator, and throughout Scripture, life is described as a gift of God. So that next breath you took, do you know what that was? The grace of God. And the breath after that, you know what that is? The grace of God and the grace of God. Now, if that is true, that every breath you have is purely the grace of God, God does not owe you the next breath. God is not indebted to you to keep you alive. Paul says it like this, In Romans 11, who has given gifts to God that he might be repaid? God, you owe me. No, he doesn't. You owe God. 
And yet, praise God, he is by his nature gracious and merciful. But here's the point. God has the sovereign right to give that gift and to withhold it. That's what it means for him to be God. And it is his right to judge when he sees fit. That's number one. Second thing to keep in mind, and this is where the passage gets wild, okay? The Bible's weird. I'm not going to domesticate it for you, all right? We have to understand God's adversary in this judgment. Verse 2 and verse 4 talk about the sons of God coming into the daughters of man during this time. Now, here's the context. Genesis 3 says this, that there's a war going on in creation between the seed of the woman and who? The serpent, right? So every battle, this is the war going on underneath, is that there's the seed of the woman God is working through, and the seed of the serpent, Satan is constantly trying to get dominion over humanity to make humanity his kingdom. God is trying to make humanity his kingdom, right? That's the context. That's the spiritual battle. And now, in this scene, here's what's happening. Now, this is as the genealogy of Genesis 5 is playing out. During this time when the world is falling apart, the sons of God are coming into the daughters of man. Scholars have argued endlessly, endlessly, about what that means, who are the sons of God, and I think the most clear interpretation, and this really seems to be how Jude and Peter interpret it in the New Testament, is that the sons of God are angelic beings. They're spiritual beings in rebellion against God who step out of their boundary and start coming to earth and messing with the daughters of men. And if you don't believe me, go read Jude and 2 Peter, because that really seems to be the way they interpret it. The phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament means angelic beings, and that's weird. It's weird. Angelic beings, daughters of men, Satan is trying to form these unions, and it's clear in the passage that a boundary is being crossed that God doesn't want crossed. You see it, right? Look at the parallel between this and Genesis 3. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The Hebrew word is good. And what did they do? They took. What does that sound like? Eve saw that the tree was good and she took. There's a clear verbal parallel here. Eve transgressed this boundary that God didn't want crossed. These beings cross a boundary God doesn't want crossed. Now, one way of understanding this is that these sons of God are evil tyrants, they're evil rulers, and in a sense, they're possessed by evil spiritual beings creating these marriages. I don't know exactly how this all worked out, and I won't get into the Nephilim because that's crazy too and we don't have time. Sorry to disappoint you. That's like a six-week sermon series unto itself. Here is the point, though, that the seed of the serpent and Satan's influence in the world is overtaking and corrupting humanity that the world itself is falling under the dominion of Satan and coming off the rails. And that explains verse 5. Every intention of the human heart was only evil continually. You can't get more extreme in a description of that than sin. <laughs> Every thought people have is only evil continually. It's a picture of the seed of the serpent overtaking humanity. So what does God do? He has to crush the seed of the serpent. And as we'll see, he's doing it for the sake of humanity. But that's the adversary here that God is going after. Next, notice that God's arrangement in judgment, that it's a fitting punishment. In fact, the punishment fits the crime exactly. 
11 through 13 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy, the Hebrew word is corrupt them with the earth. Here's God's point. Humanity is destroying the earth. Humanity is destroying the animal kingdom. Humanity is destroying themselves, and so what do I bring on them? Destruction. The punishment fits the crime. It's the same word in Hebrew. Humanity is descending into chaos. I will bring the chaos upon them. So there is perfect proportionality between what God brings on them and what they themselves are creating. There is nothing arbitrary about this. That's a principle throughout the Old Testament that the punishment always fits the crime. Now, Here's the next point that you need to see. Whereas humanity is on a course towards self-destruction under the seed of the serpent, God's ultimate aim in this is preservation. It's actually to preserve the earth is why God is doing this. Think about the scene in Genesis 1. Remember what it says in verse 2? That waters covered the face of the earth. Remember that? And so what's about to happen in the flood in Genesis 6 through 9? Waters are about to cover the face of the land or the earth. Now, why would God do that? It's not because he hates his creation, but because he loves his creation and wants to bring about what? New creation. This is a recreation of the earth. And see, just as God is about to bring about a new earth, Noah is the new Adam in God's new earth. See, God makes a covenant with Noah, but what you see, fast forward to Genesis 8, is that's God's covenant with us as well, that I will no longer destroy the earth, we'll see. And so here's the point, that God is actually covenanting with humanity through Noah to keep humanity alive. Those are the options. Humanity can self-destruct or God can have a plan to purify his creation and save humanity so that, guess what, we get to be born and experience the mercy of God. So do you see God's redemptive purpose in this? Humanity, apart from God, will self-destruct. So God says no. He intervenes to save us. Not because the world's bad, because it's good and needs to be preserved. Next thing I want you to see is God's agony in this judgment. And I can't think of a, a better word than that, that the God was sorry that he had made man He says it twice, and that it grieved him to his heart. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind when we read this that that the writer is trying to give us a window into God even though God transcends our understanding. And here's what we know from Scripture. God doesn't have regrets, right? God never goes, whoops, Ah, take back. No, God's plan is good. God doesn't change. God doesn't make mistakes. So what's going on here? We have this window into the grief of God in this decision. That word regret also means repent or change. So God says, I am repenting of my design to make man. And here's one thing we know from the Old Testament. Part of God's unchanging character is this, that he responds to humanity in different ways depending on how humanity responds to him. In fact, you see that in Jeremiah 18. God says, if I decree disaster for people and they repent, what does God do? He changes his plan for them because that's part of his unchanging nature to be merciful. 
That's how you put these things together. And he relents of the judgment he was going to give them. Conversely, Jeremiah 18 says that if God plans blessing for people and they turn against God, guess what? God repents, changes of the course he would have had for them of blessing and brings what? Judgment. So this is part of God's unchanging moral character is to respond to us in different ways depending on how we respond to his goodness and grace. So this doesn't jeopardize God's unchanging character, but here's what we do know, that God, there's this divine reluctance even in executing a necessary judgment. As Ezekiel says, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. See, God can be provoked to anger. God cannot be provoked to mercy because mercy is inherent to who God is. He is gracious. And there is a time when God has to intervene and say enough is enough and stop things for the sake of his good creation. But even here, you see the goodness and graciousness of God. Now, God can't be overwhelmed by emotion. God's emotions don't tell him what to do. And yet God feels affection here. Isn't that amazing for his creation? Finally, and this gets to the the payoff for us as we think about this, is God has tremendous patience in executing this judgment. God sees the world and it's a dumpster fire. It's really bad. It's worse than we can imagine. And yet God says this, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, scholars have debated this too. What exactly does that mean? I think the clearest way to interpret this, Luther, Calvin, a bunch of people today see it this way, is this, that God sees that humanity is on a course for destruction, and yet he gives this period of reprieve and warning before his judgment comes, and it's a 120-year period. See, God's spirit is the restraining force on evil in the world, and it's what keeps us alive. And God says, I'm not removing my spirit yet. The destruction isn't coming yet. And you see this throughout the Bible. And when Abraham says, I'm going to destroy the land of Canaan, he says, I must wait 400 years for the sin to become complete. With Israel, before he sends them into exile, he gives them hundreds and hundreds of years before their idolatry comes complete, and he sends the exile. God always gives clear, clear, warning, 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 so that what? We are without excuse. So that God, he gives this leash. God is slow to anger. God never flies off the handle. God never says, oh, I've had it, and then has to judge because he's just too mad. No, God's anger is always in perfect proportion to his wisdom and grace and mercy and patience so that when it comes, it is planned, it is proportionate, it is perfect. God just, I didn't even plan those Ps. It just says it. Man. But here's the point for us. God is not capricious. God doesn't just fly into fitful rages. God says, here's what's coming. You can bank on it and gives us time. He gives us time. That's why you are alive today. God is giving you time to repent and come to him. God, why won't you just deal with injustice in the world? Are you sure you want that? God is giving you time. 
Here's the sobering part of that, though. The time is not indefinite. There's a time to repent, there's a time to believe, and there's a time when that time is up. That is true for individuals. It is true for societies, that God will only let things go on for so long before he says, enough, done. That is what's sobering, and that's sobering for our own lives, and here's why. That if we harden our hearts against God in a certain area, he gives time to repent, time to repent, time to repent. But eventually, even as believers, what does he do? He disciplines us. He says, that's enough. We can stiffen our neck, stiffen our neck, but eventually we might be broken beyond healing, Proverbs says. Even as a believer, you might get to heaven. It might permanently ruin the rest of your life, though. God has a point where he says, that's enough and disciplines. And the plea for me would be, particularly if you're a believer, that you, you repent today because God's giving you the grace to repent. And you don't know if that grace will be there tomorrow or if discipline is coming. I remember when I was a kid, and I've told this story before, you know, we grew up on a cul-de-sac, and uh, my friends and I used to ride bikes down to the end of our street as fast as we could and then slam on our brakes. It was a fun game. Um, and I remember the first time I ever rode a bike with handbrakes rather than a kick brake. And, uh, and they said, Jeff, you know this works? I said, sure. And so I did what a kid would do. I rode down the hill as fast as I could. And then I broke with my feet and started pedaling backwards. And I went, oh, yeah, brakes, brakes. And, and there was a brick wall at the end of our cul-de-sac. And I'm flying, and I'm flying. And so I think, man, i got to stop. So I squeeze as hard as I can on both brakes, and the bike stopped. And I did not. <laughs> Just... Thankfully, there was a wall there to stop me, and I actually I met it with my face. I was two-faced for a few days. I just had this scar right here. The rest of my face looked fine. J.C. Ryle said, the way of sin is downhill, and you will not be able to stop when you think you should. Sin creates momentum. Sinners sin, and it breeds more sin. And so I love you, so I warn you. There's an area where you are stiffening your neck against God. The yoke is easy right now. Bend, confess, forsake, repent. But if you keep stiffening your neck, God might have to break that neck to save you. Don't wait for that. Don't wait for that. If you have the grace to repent, do it today. So there's a clear warning. The question for us now is, how do we respond to God's warnings? God tells us what eternal blessing, eternal judgment will look like. What does faith in the future look like, it's Noah. It's Noah. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we get a whole new genealogy. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember, in Genesis, whenever we see little genealogical markers, what does that mean? Here's who God's working through. Here's the seed. It's Noah. And in this world that is in rebellion against God, God finds this one man and his family, and it says Noah was righteous, blameless, walked with God. Righteous means you stay away from what God forbids, you pursue what God says to pursue. 
It means your life is characterized by positive goodness for other people. Bruce Waltke says that righteousness in the Old Testament is a life where you disadvantage yourselves for the advantage of others. You use your resources to bless those in your sphere of influence. That is righteousness in the Old Testament. But beyond that, he is blameless. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. We'll get to Genesis 9. Noah was not sinless. But what it means is that there's no serious accusation that can be leveled against you that would hold. That you're a person known for pursuing the good, for pursuing God, quick to repent. That's, that's blameless. Even more unique is that Noah walked with God. That's a very unique phrase in the Old Testament. Remember chapter 5, who walked with God? Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And as we saw last week, God delivers Enoch from death. As he walks with them, and here, he will deliver Noah through judgment. Now, here's the thing. We read all of these things and think, wow, Noah must have been a really remarkable guy. And the answer to that question is, you know what? Sort of. <laughs> sort of, because what we should see is that what Noah does is just live a walk of faith. That's the point. Not that Noah was particularly heroic or smart or powerful, or any of those things, he just trusted God and took him at his word. In fact, this is so interesting. You know, in the ancient Near East, there are all of these flood stories, which tells me something happened, right? <laughs> there was some kind of cataclysmic flood. And in each of these flood stories, the hero is like smarter than the gods. <laughs> he like sees the flood coming. He's so powerful, he builds the ark, he sees ahead. And you know what Noah is? He's just ordinary. I think the writer of Genesis is actually trying to demythologize this story for his hearers and say it's nothing special or spectacular about Noah other than he took God at his word. That's the point. How do we know that? Well, what does Noah do in response to God's word? He does something that seemed crazy. Crazy. Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, you see here that this preparation of the ark is all about the preservation of creation, don't you? Where do we hear that language of male and female and according to its kind and to every kind? We just heard it in Genesis 1. God's saying, Noah, I'm creating a new world. You're the new Adam. You will preserve the goodness of creation in this new world. So all you've got to do is build this massive ark that you can't even possibly conceive. I'll give you the blueprints. And now go do it. And imagine Noah doing this. It's crazy. 
it's crazy. This took forever, clearly. It took forever. We don't know the exact dimensions. The Hebrew is actually pretty vague on exactly how they put together. One thing that's interesting is this thing is seaworthy by its dimensions. In the Babylonian story, it's a giant cube that's five times this big. I don't think that would have made it in the flood. It's a seafaring boat. But, but the point is this, that taking God at his word means that you prepare for God's future, even if in the present it doesn't make sense to anyone around you. That's the point. That I live for the world God says is coming, and I work toward that world. That's the point of the ark. How do we know that this is all about preparation, that that's the point of this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked because the New Testament tells us. Hebrews 11, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed or prepared in ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by How do we know that Noah trusted God? He said he knew what God said about the future, and he lived like God's future was the truest thing about reality. Holy reverence. Holy reverence means that we take more seriously what God says will happen than what we think might happen. Holy reverence says, the thing I should be preparing for in the future is the things God says will happen rather than me being consumed with what might happen. That is the difference between faith and fear. The thing I know is coming is what I prepare for. And even if the people around me say, your priorities are crazy. Your plans are crazy. No, it was crazy. Say, well, God said it, so it's not a matter of if, but when. That's holy reverence. Family, this is hard to cultivate in a culture of now. Amen? Man, we can get things so quick. So quick. We were at a coffee a few mornings ago. And I was so mad because how could we run out of coffee, right? (laughs) We're fools. And so I wake up, and and my thought is, I am going to get coffee as quickly as humanly possible. So I say, honey, get on the mobile app for Pete's. Order the coffee now. I will be there in five minutes. Gets up, she groggily gets up, she's ordering the coffee. I zoom over to Pete's, and it wasn't ready. And I thought, unbelievable. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I, my wife ordered that seven minutes ago. Seven, and all you have to do, it's not, it's not a latte, it's not a you just, just pour the thing. And I'm like, man. That's the culture we live in. You could get it now, like right now, groceries now, prime now, right? And and, and so this is going to require a major reorientation of our heart. 
where, where we say, you know, the things that are really going to matter most to me are probably not the things I want most immediately. At most times. Implication is this, the question to ask yourself is this, is my life governed by the concerns of today or by what I will be concerned about on the day of Christ's return? Am I consumed by the concerns of today or is my life governed by what I will be concerned about on the day because there's another day of judgment coming, the flood was a type. And on that day, what am I going to be concerned about? What are the things I'm going to want to say I invested my life in on that day? Here's the reality for humans is that we don't even know what we want most days. And do you know how I know that's true? You look at what people say when they die and their regrets about how they wish they had lived. Bronnie Ware wrote this famous blog post. She worked in palliative care for years, and she would interview all of these people who were dying. And they all had a lot of the same regrets about, man, I spent way too much at work. For men, that was a huge one. I wish I'd been more courageous in conversations, that I, that I would have said my heart more often. I wish I had kept up with my friends and, and cultivated those relationships. And, and so I look at that and I go, man, humans don't even know what they want in the immediate. But at a deeper level, we don't even know what's good for us in the long term. Because we don't see with the eyes of eternity, only Jesus does. And so I have to ask myself on the day Jesus returns, what am I going to say? Man, I'm really glad that my life was wrung out for that. Because there's a lot of things I can invest in that the flood of judgment is going to wash away. That's what the Bible says. And so what should I care about on the day of Christ's return? I mean, a few examples. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says when we minister to others, minister with the word. Plant the word in people because the judgment will be a fire that will reveal the quality of your work in other people's life. And the things you built into that's just your wisdom or your cleverness or whatever that you built into, the fire will burn those things up, Paul says. That there's work you might do in other people's life that won't last, but what's founded on the word of God will endure. That character will endure. So how do you minister Matthew 25, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant to who? Those who helped their brothers and the sisters in faith when they were in distress. Who saw particularly their faith, family, and need and poured out their lives for them. That's who Jesus says, well done to. Is that orienting my life now? Here's what I've been thinking about this week is, is generosity and how I use my money. And, and what expenditures will I be eternally grateful about? And you know why I was thinking of this? Two things. I was thinking about Luke 19, where Jesus says that he stewards us money to make investments in his kingdom, right? That's Luke 19. And I was thinking about that because I was cleaning my garage yesterday. And, you know, I never feel so stupid about the purchases I make as when I'm cleaning out my garage. Right? I mean, I unleashed a flood of judgment on my garage yesterday. It was a purifying judgment, and everything had to go. And I, I'm like, hide that from the kids. Hide, don't tell them we're throwing that away. Don't, you know, that's basically what it is, is distract the kids so we can throw away all their stuff, right? And, and I'm doing that, and I'm like, oh. look at my wife, and I'm like, if I had the money we'd spent on these things versus these things, I'm like, and it just got me thinking about how many things I've spent money on where I was so excited at the time, and now I'm so excited to get rid of it. 
And I'm like, man, what kind of expenditures could I make where I would be happier and happier every year that I invested my money in that thing? And Jesus says what we invest in the kingdom reaps a returnal, eternal return. That's compound interest, eternal return. And so for me, one thing that means for Kashel and I, every year we just do a little generosity check and we say, by God's grace, we should give more this year than last year, right? Because I want to say at the day of Christ's return that I purchased and invested in what? The things that mattered so that I can reap the eternal joy of seeing how God used those things to extend his kingdom. Does that make sense? Living for today versus living for the day. And if you don't believe in Jesus, I think the most loving thing I could possibly do to end this sermon is to warn you. Because true love warns. It warns of what's coming. For man it is appointed to die once and then comes judgment. Um, God is still invincibly committed to purifying this world because it's a good world and eradicating evil. And, and Jesus says in Luke 17 and, and Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that the judgment that is to come is like the flood. There will be a flood of judgment that purifies this earth. Praise God, because that's the earth we want. <laughs> we don't want to live eternally in a world where the power of hell is unleashed. That sounds horrible. No one wants that world. And the good news is God doesn't want that world either. But 2 Peter 3 says this, that God is not slow in fulfilling his promise. Rather, he's patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. The reason that God withholds judgment is because he wants you to come to know Jesus. And that's why. That's why God withholds and withholds and withholds is to give you time. Because a flood is coming, but the good news for us is there's an ark, and that's Jesus. <laughs> and family, that's the only ark. That's the only ark where we're safe from judgment. Jesus comes and dies for our sins to forgive us of our sins so we don't have to face judgment. And he rises, and the Bible says that when we trust in him, we are united to Jesus. We are in him. We are in the ark forever. We are safe in Christ, hidden in Christ forever. But family, that's the only safe place to be. So I love you. And so I warn you, don't delay. If you have the grace to come to Jesus today, come to him today. And you would pray something like this. You can all bow your heads. Jesus, I see that this world is a mess. Thank you that you are going to redeem it. Thank you that you came to die for my sins and rise from the dead. I trust in you. I ask for your forgiveness of my sins. I follow you as my Lord. Come into my life. Make me the person you want me to be. Thank you that, that in you I am safe. In your name, amen.